Hello and welcome to the Dorkamotive Podcast with Brian Loans. This episode, called Beating Hitler with Combines, is the story of the 1944 Harvest Brigade, an effort between industry, the U.S. government, and hardworking American farmers to harvest the largest grain crop ever and to do so in the face of Nazi aggression and to help feed the world. It's a truly inspiring story and one that brings out the best in everybody involved. Enjoy. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Drag and Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. Grain flowing from the field, vital to all men. A necessity in peace, even more important in war. Food for those who fight, for those who forge the weapons, for those who might otherwise starve in war-ravaged lands across the sea. Crops were bountiful in 1944, but farmers were troubled. How was this great crop to be harvested? Thousands of farmers had gone to fight for their country. Others had joined war production lines. Weapons of war consume materials normally used in farm machinery production. And yet, the crop had to be harvested. Some of the crop would have been lost, even with adequate manpower, if we had been forced to rely on the old-fashioned methods, which consumed countless hours in performing slow, cumbersome operations, the binding and shocking, the loading of the wagon. And so it's here we begin the story of the 1944 Harvest Brigade, one of the more kind of forgotten episodes of World War II. It's not even really forgotten. It's just something that happened in 1944, in subsequent years, but also, but most importantly in 1944. And... It was important news in the middle of the country. It was news that didn't spread too far east or west. And um, it is a story that I kind of stumbled upon a few years ago and have had it on the back burner of my mind to dive deeper into it and to learn more about it. And as it turns out, the more I learned about the Harvest Brigade, the more enamored I became with this story, especially because outside of uh, the middle of the country, I think it's been either forgotten or people have never heard of it before. I was stunned when I went back to do the research for this podcast to look at my newspaper archives, which I, I use newspapers.com as a, as a archive source on all of these shows, among other places. And they map out where the stories were printed and, and where the kind of news went. And, and none of it, none of it went east of the Mississippi. Very, very interesting. Now, you'll find out why the west of the Mississippi audience was informed about it. But we're talking about news that was really central to Texas, to Oklahoma, to Nebraska, really up that center swath of the country that really uh, serves as not only the breadbasket of America, of course, but also in so many ways the breadbasket of the world, especially at this point in time. If you're wondering what could possibly be interested, uh, interesting rather, about a group of people harvesting wheat, uh, I do feel like you're going to enjoy this. Uh, it is a bit off the rails, but it is a story of... This, this combination of uh, the government, industry, and hardworking American farmers pulling together and doing something magnificent. And I, I feel like that's the, the, grand, the greatest part about this story that I like is that 
it contributes to a war effort that's that that is of course so holistic in the United States every facet of this country was either making armaments working to to clothe soldiers to feed soldiers to do whatever they possibly could to support the war effort and this is another piece of that puzzle so often we get into the situation where if you're um, a, a, someone who enjoys you know studying World War II or that era of history we run into these situations where you'll hear somebody say, well, this is what won the war. And it's impossible. It really is. When you when you consider how many moving parts and pieces, how many operations, how many fronts were being fought on, to have one item, the Jeep won the war for the Allies. The, the bomb won the war for the Allies. The B-24 won the war for the Allies. The Merlin engine and the Spitfires won the war for the Allies. Of course, all those things contributed to winning the war. But there are so many things well beyond the surface that contributed to winning the war. This is one of those stories. You know, the old saying, an army marches on its stomach. Well, not just an army, but entire populations. You need vigorous populations to fill factories to build the B-24s. You need vigorous populations to raise strong young men to go fight in this war. And so this is a story about food it is a story about calories it is a story about the most basic human sustenance on the planet things like wheat and corn and flax and sorghum and and these these kind of things that we take for granted as the very bedrock of society and and of our diet so uh, i think you're going to enjoy this i know i certainly have enjoyed researching it and one of the things that you know I had to learn about to uh, to get this story told properly, and and the way we're going to go through this is we're going to go through the the process of kind of the mechanization of wheat harvesting. Uh, we're going to go through why that uh, kind of changed the world. We're going to talk about the machinery that was developed to perform that job, and then we'll get into the very specific uh, specific I should say uh, method that was employed during World War II, specifically in 1944 by the Massey Harris Corporation and by the United States government and the uh, the War Food Administration uh, teaming up to get this job done along with again very hard working American farmers. So we go all the way back into the the earliest days really of of uh, kind of recorded human history to a degree to talk about the harvest of wheat and you know, wheat, of course, is a, a product that is, you know, it's bread. It's so many things. Wheat is ubiquitous in our in our lives, and it's so important that uh, it is harvested properly and it is used. And before we get too far out, to understand the importance of this American wheat harvest in 1944, it, we can put it in modern perspective. Um, we know that there is a war going on between Russia and the Ukraine right now. And what has been one of the more highly contested areas of this war in terms of tenuous agreements between the two warring factions, wheat. If you remember, if you remember correctly, earlier in 2022, there was an agreement struck that allowed the ships to leave Ukrainian ports with wheat. Ukraine is, in so many ways, uh, a giant breadbasket for Europe and even for uh, Africa. And for other parts of the world that uh, that buy massive, massive quantities of Ukrainian wheat, it is part of their culture, it's part of their economy, and it shows how interconnected not only the world is now, but how interconnected it was in 1944, because in so many ways, those same wheat fields were the ones that every other place in the world that could grow the stuff were trying to compensate for. In 1944... Um, you know, the Germans still had a pretty good stranglehold on a lot of areas that were uh, wheat producing 
they were hang they were obviously hoarding those things for their own populace things going very badly in the war really um after june of 1944 of course after the united states invasion on d-day but the reality is this was a, a, a 1944 problem that also started to become a 2022 problem in the modern parlance so just to give you some context there before we go down the rabbit hole of history so how do we harvest wheat and there are certain words in the the harvest of wheat that are used that are part of our language now only because of how ubiquitous and how how common they were used over the course of time when the world was effectively an agricultural place long before major industry so it it is a three-step process and it is highly laborious i have never done it uh i have been reading about it those of you that uh, work in the farming and agriculture industry will laugh at my lack of experience in this but if we take things back hundreds and hundreds of years long before mechanized farming you had a a basic three-step process you had to walk through the field with a scythe the thing that the grim reaper carries around and you had to chop it down which was called reaping hence the name of the grim reaper he's the guy with the scythe that is uh, slung over his shoulder then you had to separate the kernels of wheat from the indelible chaff with a flail now a flail is exactly what you think it is uh a flail the stuff would be on the ground and you'd you beat it up with the flail and it would start to it would start to separate that indelible chaff from the wheat this is a process called threshing which brought us the world with the word rather thrashing so when you say the word thrashing if we're talking about drag racing or we're talking about somebody getting beat up they took a thrashing that word derives from the word threshing which is that process of hitting the wheat with a flail it was also accomplished by you know having uh, animals stomp on it early in the day long before they had a flail they would have oxen and other animals actually walk on the wheat and that would help the separation process the third part of this process is called winnowing which is separating the kernels of wheat from the actual chaff itself and you would winnow down the wheat from the chaff and winnowing is a word that is still used uh, in our language today to talk about any time you're you're kind of shrinking something down or you're 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 making it smaller you're weeding things out you're winnowing things down that is the way things were done for many many hundreds of years and we're talking about the 1830s when we can really begin to discuss you know mechanized harvesting of wheat and the device that we're going to talk most about here is called a combine and we're going to talk about a self-propelled combine when it comes to World War II, but a combine in and of itself was a machine that was aptly named because it was built to combine the three processes I've just told you about, the reaping, the threshing, and the winnowing, into one machine. You would combine those three processes in one fell swoop. And we can go back to really the 1830s when these things started to be built in a very rudimentary fashion, of course, and, and really combines are one of the most important agricultural inventions in the history of mankind because of what they have allowed us to do in terms of the ability to harvest vast quantities of wheat you obviously the more um, mechanization you have the larger you area you can plant the more crop you can grow the more money you can make but you need to be able to do it in a more efficient fashion in the 1830s, uh, two guys, Hiram Moore and John Haskell up in Michigan, built the worst, the first working combine. And this was patented actually in uh, 1836. And it was powered by horses or oxen or mules, depending on what, did you, what you wanted to, to move it with. But a rotating sickle would cut the stocks down. There was a reel that would push the grain into a canvas a- apron that would then get it into a threshing cylinder that would do the work 
to uh, start to separate it. And then there was fans that would separate the threshed grain and blow the chaff out. So what you have here, though, is it's not motorized. Of course, it's 1836. It's being pulled around by, and it has what's called either, a, usually called a bull wheel, which is a big wheel that's on the ground that has gears on it. And that wheel turning makes this whole process work. And the other thing we have to talk about when we talk about these first combines is they were not commercially successful because they were so expensive for the day. Very few farmers could justify the massive cost for one of these machines. They were about 17 feet long, 15 feet wide. And here's the thing that is just insane to think about. I mentioned it would take horses or mules to, to pull this thing through the fields. Yeah, 30 of them. The, the, the one that Moore and Haskell built, it was recommended to have 30 mules or horses to pull along. And you did not pull this thing fast. It was a monstrosity. And, of course, it was you know more efficient than having just men doing this work by hand. But at the time... It was uh, it was it was just huge and insanely expensive. Farmers, being a uh, well-known kind of frugal part of our society, they don't overinvest in things they a don't think they generally need, or b uh, typically they're not into investing in gadgets. And this would have been a massive gadget. The downsides of something that needs to be uh, hauled along by thirty mules or horses is that those thirty mules or horses are trampling a lot of the grain that is in front of the combine. So that's something to think about as we talk about this process. We're going to talk about efficiencies, and we're going to talk about how equipment helped to improve all those. And one of the first things we need to think about is not only are you, you know, needing to feed these animals, you're needing to keep them uh, watered, you're needing to do all this stuff to, to prevent them from dying in a hot wheat field in the summer when you're harvesting this stuff, you're also losing a lot of crop because they're walking over this stuff and trampling it under their feet. So that was not ideal. Not many of those things sold. In the 1880s, steam power starts to become a part of the farm life. And steam-powered threshers, which were not combines because they were simply doing the threshing part of the job, did make life more efficient. You would haul this thing into the field. You would then fire up the boiler. Uh, a lot of them had a flywheel on it, and you would run this thing. And, and effectively, instead of doing the threshing on the spot, you would bundle all the, the wheat up, and you would haul it over to the threshing machine and throw it in there and it would do the threshing part of the job for you. So that was, that was again, another step forward. Now, Holt Tractors out in California, which would eventually combine with Best Tractors to become the Caterpillar Company, uh, Holt introduced in 1911 a huge self-propelled combine. And again, we go back to this idea that it is not a commercially viable idea because the majority of farms are not these expansive Western uh, ranches that go on for thousands and thousands and thousands of acres at this time in history. There was a lot of smaller farms, and again, the farms were smaller because so much of the work was done with basic equipment or by hand. So the Holt machine, as impressive as it is, and I, I would encourage you to go look it up in Google Images because it is a wild-looking thing. It's a the steampunk as steampunk gets. It was functional, but it was just way too expensive to be commercially viable. It would take the job of a 20 to 30 man crew up to 40 or 50 guys and reduce it down to four to five people. You would still have a lot of loss for, you know, trampled grain. Even though this thing was self-propelled, it wasn't necessarily the most efficient way to harvest. Certainly, maybe more efficient than having 50 guys do it. But we also have to remember, if, even with 50 guys working, you're not paying them a whole lot of money. 
uh, harvesting wheat was backbreaking work, but it was not a way to get rich quick uh, as far as the labor goes. In 1915, there was a tractor pulled combine introduced, and this was really kind of the first big innovation. As as farm tractors become more and more prevalent, manufacturers start in, it, to develop attachments for these tractors, and they start to develop different tools really for the farmer to use and to make his tractor a much more efficient part of his job. So the tractor pulled combine is invented by International Harvester. The tractor pulled combine is efficient in the method of you don't have to have your horses out there, uh, you don't have to have your 40 or 50 guys, but it is a bit thirsty because you're going to be running your tractor and you're going to be running a second engine that actually runs the thresher inside that combine you're pulling along. It was not run off the PTO or the power takeoff of the tractor because back then the tractors simply weren't powerful enough to do that. But you could have a second engine running that uh, thresher and it would work. Again, the downside here is that your tractor is going to be driving over a lot of wheat before it gets to your thresher, so there's going to be a loss there. And if you think, yeah, how much loss can it be? Well, yeah, it's tire tracks, but when you start adding up the tire tracks, the width of those tire tracks, and you're driving miles and miles and miles up and down and around your farm, it does become a measurable part of your crop. So not perfect, but another advanced solution. By 1930, the United States Department of Agriculture estimates that there are 75,000 tractor-pulled combines being used. So this is clearly a method that was adopted by a lot of farmers. And it was, in so many ways, the first of these mechanized methods to do this job that would become normal, that would become commercially available, that would become commercially viable. And of those 75,000, the Department of Agriculture study said that 27,000 of them alone were in Kansas, which is to me astonishing to think about. And it speaks to how vitally important Kansas was and is to the wheat harvest of the United States. In the 1920s, just to dip back for a moment, something interesting began to happen. A new industry sprung up, and it was a very small industry to begin with, but it was an industry called custom cutting. And custom cutting was simply a an entrepreneurial spirit of, uh, of farmers who decided, hey, wait a second, if I buy one of these um, mechanized combines, the one I'm pulling behind my tractor, um, what if I harvest my farm and then go to my neighbor and say, hey, man, I know you don't have a, a, a tractor over here or, or a combine. How about for a dollar an acre? I'm just throwing a number out there. For a dollar an acre, I will harvest your crop for you. You owe me a buck an acre on your farm. How many acres? The farm's 500 acres. You pay me 500 bucks. I will, I will run my combine over and I will harvest your crop. Thus begins a, an industry which is, and we'll talk about this, has since become massive in this country called custom cutting or custom harvesting. And I'm not sure how it got the name custom harvesting, other than the fact that these were guys that were harvesting crops that were not theirs, um, and they were doing it for profit. But the, the budding industry of custom cutting evolves from the fact that these mechanized combines are all over the place and not everybody can afford them. And some people are willing to pay somebody else to do this work because, frankly, for a buck an acre, it saves everybody a lot of headaches. You don't have to worry about if everybody's showing up to work that day. You don't have to worry about if someone's going to break their ankle or cut themselves with a scythe. You go right down the list of potential problems. If you can simply pay the money and you're happy with the price, it's a job well done for everybody. And so now we move along to 1937. And in 1937, something ha- something interesting happens in that the Massey-Harris Company 
introduces the first commercially viable self-propelled combine. And it was called the Model 20. And the most interesting part of this is the genesis of how it happened. A guy named uh, Thomas Carroll was the engineer who, uh, let's say, perfected this design or brought this design to market. And supposedly the way this worked was that Massey Harris had combines that were working very good. They had them all over the world, including down in Argentina. And apparently there were farmers in Argentina who were equipping their Massey Harris combines with an additional engine to make them self-propelled. And they looked at the kind of crude nature of how those farmers were doing it, went back and engineered another solution. And lo and behold, the Model 20 was introduced in 1937. And the revolution here is the fact that now we get to park our tractor. Now we have one machine to do this job. We're not going to lose any of that crop to driving over the stocks or running over stuff. We're not going to have two engines running to feed a tractor and a combine. We're simply going to have one nip and tuck solution that is easy to operate, is relatively uh, manageable in terms of its size, and is priced to the point where a farmer can look at this and either say, I can pay this off in one really good season, or I can pay this off in a couple of decent seasons, or I can get this thing, harvest my crop, and then make some money to pay this thing off as a custom cutter. The Model 20 changes American farming in ways that we don't really understand until we get to the end of this story and look back on it. But it was a very robust design. It was, as most farm equipment was in this era, very simplified. It was easy to work on, and it was built robustly so it would survive uh, in theory, survive some very hard days and nights and weeks and weeks and weeks working and harvesting crops. So that is the timeline that brings us to 1944. And by 1944, the Massey Harris Corporation has taken that Model 20 and refined it and made the Model 21, which was introduced in 1940. And if you're a supreme dork for farm equipment like I am, the Model 21 is very identifiable uh, for a couple of reasons. You have an elevated driver's platform. It's in the open. There is no cab. You have an elevated driver's platform putting the driver front and center. And the most identifiable feature on this combine is not just the giant cutting head in the front. And anybody, if you've never seen a combine, and I guarantee everybody listening to this at once in their life has seen a combine, the easiest way I can describe a modern combine and what the front end of the Model 21 looked like is a giant lawnmower with a rotary barrel-style blade on the front of it. And I know some of you out there that maybe operate this equipment are cringing when I say that, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this a visual that everybody can understand. So you have seen these pieces of equipment, whether you've been driving on the highways of the Midwest or you've flipped through the TV and you've seen one showed at a movie on a farm, but you know what I'm talking about. It looks like a massive lawnmower. Now, back in the day, they weren't so massive. The front of this thing was about 14 feet across, but it worked in much the same way, maybe in a more rudimentary fashion. So bright red has the yellow kind of round cutting head on the front of it that rotates, looks like a paddle wheel to a degree, and it had a round tank on the side, and that round tank is, is where the harvested product ended up. And the operator could look back and see how full his tank was. Coming off of that tank was a spout. And when the tank got full, you pulled your truck up next to it, the truck pulled up, you emptied the the contents of the tank into the truck, the truck went to the local grain silo, and you went about your business filling the tank again until the truck came back. So that is 
really bringing us up to speed in a very quick fashion uh, in, in as much detail as I think I'd want to share in terms of the evolution of combines and the evolution of harvesting wheat as we get now to the 1940s. Just to put total closure maybe on this point, I'm going to play you some audio from a film that was made by the Massey-Harris Corporation in the 1940s called Wonder Harvest, and they're going to take you through a little bit more of that combine evolution. Yes, in the age of the steam threshing rig, many machines and great crews of men were needed for the harvest. In the years of peace, the combine had reduced the need for manpower and speeded up the harvest. But still, farmers and engineers had worked toward the day when the combine would operate without the tractor and with only one man. Success came with the first Massey-Harris self-propelled combine in 1937. No cost had been spared in engineering, design, or construction, resulting in the practical and successful application of the self-propelled principle. Another great step had been achieved in the mechanization of harvesting. And so that verifies our timeline that we talked about, right? That 1937 introduction, 1940, the Model 21 is introduced, and we work our way up to 1944. And to set the scene for you in 1944, uh, properly moving forward, there's a few things we need to consider. We have a country that has now been at war for about half a decade. We have a country that has called up many, 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 many available men to go to war. A lot of these men come from the farms. They come from the Midwest. They're hardworking people. They're country boys, and they go off to fight the Nazis. They go off to fight the Japanese. They are fighting everywhere and anywhere they can. And so we also have a problem where Europe is uh, starving to a degree. Uh, you have uh, situations in England where you know all the public spaces have been turned into agricultural space. That's something a lot of people don't know. Um, parks and, and various other recreational areas were, were farmed uh, because they needed to grow as much wheat and as much vegetables and as, as much food as they possibly could because a lot of their supply was choked off from Europe. The other thing we have going on in 1944 is the War Food Administration has begun and the Department of Agriculture have begun to forecast the fact that this could be and should be and likely will be the largest crop in, in the history of the United States. And they're talking, it's hundreds of millions of acres that need to be harvested at a point where you are at your lowest in manpower and at your lowest in available resources to do this job. And we double down on the fact that farmers who want to buy equipment a lot of the time can't get it. The reason is everything is rationed during World War II. You, you likely know this, but it's a point we need to make. So the steel is rationed. The rubber is mash, rationed. Any available uh, you know, copper for making wiring is, is rationed. Everything is on a ration. And so companies like Massey Harris, who you may be wondering why I've only spoken about Massey Harris so far, and I'll get to that in a minute. But companies like Massey Harris are not only, they are not, they are given an allotment of material to make farm equipment, and it's tiny because their main focus at Massey Harris is building Sherman tanks. And those Sherman tanks, the government needs those a heck of a lot more than they do combines. But they need combines. And so this is where the story really begins to take shape because there is one guy at the Massey-Harris company that sees this whole thing coming together and he sees a business opportunity. And normally you'd start to admonish this guy by for being like slimy and being jerky that he would try to take advantage of a situation. But in this case, 
I really cannot fault a guy named Joe Tucker, who was the vice president and sales manager of Massey Harris in the United States. Because what Joe Tucker ends up doing is, yes, his company makes some extra money. Yes, his company establishes itself light years ahead of other agricultural manufacturers in the world of combines. But, as you'll find out, Joe Tucker delivers on every single promise he made to the United States government, and thereby the United States people, as to the benefits of the program he would create called the Harvest Brigade. It is so rare in the world we live in today where somebody proposes something and has, yes, a degree of self-interest in it, but that degree of self-interest is dwarfed, absolutely dwarfed by the overall outcome of good that this program does. And frankly, as you're going to learn, about everybody in America loved Joe Tucker except for other people that made combines and agricultural equipment because Massey Harris um, is able to effectively capture the hearts and minds especially of farmers and, and everybody that's involved in this program, the publicity that it does get, because, uh, again, what they end up doing really is incredible. So the crop is, the Department of Ag Agriculture says it is going to be a massive crop. Joe Tucker knows and just does math. He does math with what he believes is the available manpower, what he believes the acreage that's going to need to get harvested, and what he knows is out there for equipment. These companies back in the, the 1940s, despite the fact that they didn't have advanced computer systems, did have an incredible knowledge of their industry, incredible knowledge of their customer base, and an incredible knowledge of what their customer base's uh, performance levels were. You know, they track this stuff year over year. The government produces documents year over year about harvests, where they're happening, how they're happening. And so all that stuff is at Joe Tucker's fingertips. So Joe Tucker comes up with what is uh, a very, very simple plan. And that simple plan is this idea of asking the government for uh, additional materials to build combines. And specifically, what he wants to do is get enough material for the Massey-Harris Corporation to build an additional 500 combines over what their allotment was from the U.S. government, meaning their allotment of raw material, steel, rubber, wire, all the basics. And as he proposes this to the government, he makes what we would now in the modern day call a pitch deck, and he gives them the math of what he is trying to do. And the basic crux of this is that Tucker tells the government, if you let me do this, if you send me the raw materials, allow me to buy the raw materials, to produce this additional 500 combines, I will sell every single one of them very quickly, but I will sell every single one of them to somebody who signs a document that guarantees they will buy, they will harvest at least 2,000 acres of somebody else's property after they buy this thing, thereby guaranteeing an additional million acres of harvest that can be completed by this so-called harvest brigade. And so the government considers it, and he has to return a couple of times as things go. But the math that Tucker worked out is pretty spectacular. And this is the math of the Harvest Brigade. To help the farmer meet this request, Massey Harris drew up a plan which called for the building of 500 self-propelled combines, in addition to those to be constructed under the yearly quota. The machines were to be sold to competent operators who would pledge to harvest at least 2,000 acres with each machine. 
These 500 men and their machines were to form the Massey-Harris Harvest Brigade, whose combined goal it would be to harvest one million acres of much-needed grain. To obtain additional materials for building these machines, the government's approval of this plan was necessary. Approval was obtained upon the presentation of these comparisons based on one million acres. How many combines would be required to harvest one million acres? If the six-foot power takeoff models were used, it would require 1,389 combines. If the 14-foot conventional models were used, 625 combines would be needed. Only 500 self-propelled combines would be required. How about tractors required to operate these combines? With the six-foot power takeoff model, 1,389 tractors would be needed. With the 14-foot conventional model, 625 tractors would be necessary. No tractors required for the self-propelled combine. How many engines for both tractor and combine for harvesting one million acres? For the power takeoff models, 1,389 engines necessary. For the 14-foot conventional model, 625 engines would be needed for the combine, plus 625 more for the tractors. Only 500 engines needed for the self-propelled combine. How about fuel required to harvest a million acres? For the power takeoff models, 750,000 gallons of tractor fuel. The conventional models would consume 750,000 gallons for the tractors, plus 500,000 for the combine. A total of 1,250,000 gallons. Only 750,000 gallons of fuel for the self-propelled. How about manpower required to harvest a million acres? The power takeoff models would require 1,389 men working 555,600 hours. The conventional combines would require 625 men for the combine, plus 625 men for the tractors. A total of 1,250 men working 500,000 hours. Only 500 men would be needed to man the self-propelled combine working just 200,000 hours. How about yield? In the harvesting of one million acres, the self-propelled combines would save 500,000 bushels of wheat, which would normally be lost with the conventional tractor and combine, as their wheels must of necessity run through the standing grain on the opening cut, beating it down, so that an average of one half bushel per acre can never be recovered. This grain, normally lost on the opening cut, is saved by the self-propelled combine, which has no tractor ahead of it. A saving of 500,000 bushels of wheat for every one million acres cut. The government approved this plan, and with the allocation of extra materials, the Massey-Harris assembly line started rolling out the Harvest Brigade Combine. When you hear those numbers, it is virtually impossible, at least it would seem, would have been impossible for anybody with a half a brain to say, no, this isn't a good idea. And as scarce as things were back then, everything had to be very, very well and tightly considered and justified to be used to do anything. So approving these 500 combines uh, after you listen to that seems like an absolute no-brainer. And as you're going to find out, it was. Um, Another thing we have to clarify on the Harvest Brigade is the fact that these 500 combines did not harvest all the grain in America. There's a bit, a bit of a misconception there sometimes you run into. Um, these were a supplemental 
additional helping unit, if you will, to help the harvest, to, to take advantage of what was to be a bumper crop. There were still many thousands of farmers that did their own harvesting and did their own work. So I want to make that clear as well. The Harvest Brigade did not simply harvest everything in America, but was you're going to find out what they did do was absolutely augment the already awesome ability of American farmers to get the job done and to help support this war effort. So as these uh, these machines get turned out, it is only natural that uh, we have to now look at the timeline and, and talk about when the Harvest Brigade officially kind of goes to work. And the official start, we can tell, of the Harvest Brigade comes in April of 1944. And the Sepulpa Herald out of Sepulpa, Oklahoma, on April 15, 1944, runs a story that says Harvest Brigade starts rolling. There is a picture of a Massey Harris 21 uh, combine with a guy on top of it and a bunch of uh, farmers waving their hats in the air. And I quote, One of the hundreds of self-propelled combines, the Harvest Brigade gets underway in a vast field of flax near Kennedy, Texas. Sponsored by the Massey Harris Company in cooperation with the War Food Administration, the brigade was created to harvest a million acres of the increased planting necessitated by the war demands. From the tech from Texas, the brigade will sweep north through the Great Plains to the Canadian border, cutting small grain wherever farmers ask for help. Operating the machine in the picture is J.C. McCarn. Standing to the left to right are the J.J.R. Pogue, the flax grower that he's being harvested on, Fred Knight, the Texas director of the Massey Harris Company, and Mr. and Mrs. R.J. Turner, owners of the flax farm. We're officially off and running in the spring of 1944. And that's the other thing I love about this story is that when they got the allotment of the materials, these guys did not waste a second. They cranked these things out. And there were two elements of the Harvest Brigade. There is the Harvest Brigade in the center of the country, and there's the Harvest Brigade in the western part of the country. California and the Pacific Northwest become a major part of this. And a more detailed story here from the Holdridge Daily Citizen of Holdridge, Nebraska, on the 17th of April, 1944. That was a Monday. This The headline, Giant Combine Brigade to Sweep Across U.S. to Aid in This Year's Harvest of All Grains. And I quote, the most powerful supporting force in man's struggle to survive will be assembled this year to help food win the war. Mobilizing on the first day of the harvest season in southern Texas and in the Imperial Valley of California, hundreds of self-propelled combines will launch their dramatic offensive to bring to a hungry world a million acres of grain that otherwise might rot in the fields unharvested because of the critical shortage of men and machines. Starting in the south and west, this great self-propelled harvest brigade will slash its way across the lush, fertile fields of the vast Middle West and the Pacific Coast, following the harvest from south to north, reaching its goal only when the last possible acre has been cut. Guiding this gigantic patriotic crusade is the Massey-Harris Company of Racine, Wisconsin, which developed the custom-cutting programs. The Harvest Brigade plan of operation is to be hailed as the logical logistical solution to the War Food Administration's efforts to make available farm machinery performing far in excess of an average year's work. Whereas the WFA attempts to reach its objective by the pooling of new tools, the Harvest Brigade, through its field organization and plan, expects to harvest a minimum of 2,000 acres with each, each self-propelled combine over five times the acreage normally cut by the average large combine, according to Otto Johnson, the local Massey-Harris distributor. In a land plagued by wartime shortage of men, materials, fuel, and food, the self-propelled Harvest Brigade was created to meet these formidable obstacles. 
each machine a one-man challenge to every obstacle in the path to a record-breaking, victorious harvest. The Massey-Harris Company has been authorized to distribute hundreds of the latest type self-propelled combines equipped with headlights to permit operation at night to bona fide, experienced custom harvesters who have enlisted in the brigade for the duration. One of these has been allotted to Mr. Johnson. I guess Mr. Johnson lives in Holdridge, Holdridge, Nebraska. You really start to see how all this begins to form up now, and it's pretty awesome. And and the fact that the Massey-Harris Company did treat this like a military operation, to me, makes it even cooler. And I say they treated this like a military operation. They actually gave out rank. In the May 1944 issue of Farm Journal, it was quoted as saying, Organized like an army, these men will slash their way from southern Oklahoma to Canada. Scouts, quote-unquote, will precede them and line up the work. Technical and supply sergeants will be along to help keep machines in repair. Combine operators will be lieutenants, and they will be a full complement of captains, majors, colonels, and a general. When the campaign is over, there will even be decorations in the form of war bonds for those who cut the most grain. Massey-Harris dealers and block men were the captains and majors. Branch managers were the colonels, and Tucker, creator of the plan, styled himself the brigadier general. The organization of this is another fascination for me because, again, no internet, no cell phones, no anything. This was analog, baby. And you're going to send 500 combines uh, in, two, in two massive armies, so to speak, two brigades, if you will, and thousands of miles just into the middle of nothing. And yes, that's exactly what they did. And it did not run into many hitches. We talk about the support systems here. We're going to talk about airplanes in a few minutes. We're going to talk about the trucks and trailers that follow these guys day by day to keep these machines running, sometimes 14 and 15 hours a day. It was relentless, and it's an amazing story. The Holdrick Daily Citizen, May 5th, 1944, story entitled Harvest Brigade. Down in East Texas last week where the flax is ripening to a boom crop prospect of 20 to 25 bushels to the acre, old railroaders rubbed their eyes, looked again, and into freight sidings on the Rock Island and Cotton Belt, the Southern Pacific engines were snubbing flat cars towering with spotless new combines. It was the beginning of a farm panzer movement that will sweep 500 of the big machines north, up the middle bowl of the American prairie during the next eight months. And in a way, it is lend-lease in reverse. When the War Food Administration came out with a flat demand for 14 million additional acres of grain in 1944, the managers of the Massey-Harris Company of Racine, Wisconsin, sat down with the War Food Administration Administrator Marvin Jones, made proposals, and came out with a nod of approval. The job proposed by Massey-Harris was organized into a harvest brigade of 500 of its self-propelled combines that would be delivered to threshing contractors in the south early in the spring, then work north in Panzer-like operation to final cuttings of wheat in the Dakotas and Minnesota late in the fall. Massey-Harris of Racine is a subsidiary of the Canadian Manufacturing Company. The 500 combines that shuffed south were assembled from parts made from Canadian metals and fabrics forged and machined in Canada. Their delivery to threshing contractors in the middle bowl stands in mute contrast to the inability of U.S. manufacturers to deliver farm equipment to the USA because of government war orders for Russia Great Britain, and other USA allies. It does speak with a megaphone voice of Canada's good neighbor policy. 
capable of harvesting 50 acres a day, operated by one man moving from job to job under its own power at an average speed of 8 miles an hour. Each unit of the brigade will work north through the flax, oat, and wheat harvest, finally coming home to Winter's Roost with its new owner's barn somewhere in the Mississippi basement next snowfly. Massey Harris executives have ordered the brigade on military lines are passing out rankings of brigade colonel to the branch managers in Dallas, Kansas, and Omaha, brigade lieutenant to the custom operators, and technical sergeant to the crews of mechanics grinding north with the machines. General staff of the campaign will be the headquarters of Racine, the Racine-run company, the executives, most of whom are veterans in the U.S. farm equipment field. They're hand-picked from the front offices of other big U.S. manufacturers during the last few years. The brigade moved into Texas bumper flax harvest about April 27th. By early spring, the extra combines were on their way to Texas and Oklahoma to meet the early harvest, the starting point of the harvest brigade. In the meantime, farmers from every section of the grain country answered the call to join the harvest brigade. They signed the brigade pledge, agreed to custom harvest at least 2,000 acres with each machine. The purchasers of brigade combines went to Texas and Oklahoma to take delivery of their machines, some driving their machines directly to the field. Others loaded their machines on trucks and transported them to the field. Still others joined together, making sure everything was secure, then setting out for the fields in great caravans. The Harvest Brigade was underway. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Dragon Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Dragon Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Dragon Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the Dragon Drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. And so as the excited announcer tells us that the Harvest Brigade is off and running in the middle of the country, it is also off and running in the western part of the country. And this report comes from the Fresno Bee of Fresno, California, 7 May, 1944. And I quote, Harvest Brigade starts operating. California, the arsenal of the air, will witness one of the greatest supporting campaigns ever launched in a war a drive to harvest a million acres of food to sustain its sons at the front and other thousands who toil day and night to provide them with the planes and ships and guns they need. Last month, the self-propelled Harvest Brigade launched its mighty drive across the rich, fertile fields of California to bring to the tables of a distracted world the products of a million acres of grain that otherwise might waste away in the fields because of the shortage of manpower, machinery, and fuel. Now, one of the things you're going to notice about these stories is that they have a homogenization to them. And the reason for that is very simple. Um, the people at Massey Harris or Massey Ferguson were um, handing these stories to people, and they were providing a lot of the information in them. So all of the stories tend to kind of focus on these, you know, major key points, the key points of, you know, this big win that they have coming and the fact that this Harvest Brigade is going to get a lot of food onto tables and that food in turn will likely make it their way to the front and to help feed starving people. They also tend to include the same details I've already talked about. So if I were to continue to read that story from the Fresno Bee, we'll get into that same point. It doesn't need a tractor. It doesn't need all the other equipment that you've been used to buying. So in this, and it may sound slimy to some people, but I think it's just kind of brilliant business, um, 
Joe Tucker and his crew have basically made these news stories into subliminal sales pitches to any farmers that may read them. And of course, these are aimed at farmers, farmers who may be worried about how their crop is going to be harvested. So uh, it is hitting all the right points. And the Harvest Brigade, as it is going, uh, is beginning to kind of make a lot of, of waves and it's beginning to make a lot of positive waves. So for instance, the Elwood Bulletin of Elwood, Nebraska, 11 May of 1944. Busy for two years turning out tanks, trucks, field guns, and other arms, the Midwestern farm implement industry is now swinging back with government permission to fashion some 900,000 tons of new steel into front food front weapons. Combines, cultivators, harrows, harvesters, rakes, reapers, plows, planters, tillers, tractors, all are rolling off the assembly line again at four-fifths the pre-war rate to be ready for the 1944 Harvest Brigade. These labor-saving tools will be distributed around the country to help farmers plant, cultivate, and harvest 374 million acres, 13 million more acres than last year's harvest. And that is an astonishing number. 374 million acres will be harvested or tried or attempted to be harvested in 1944. I do not know how that stacks up to today. I would guess it is less than what is farmed and harvested in the United States today. That is just a, to me, a mind-boggling number. And it is certainly something that makes you appreciate the size and scope of this. And not just the fact that the Harvest Brigade is doing it, but think of all the other farmers who are going to be harvesting their own crops out there. It is, it is a massive, massive thing to think about. And the facts, rather the facts of the matter are that, that without these people, uh, we starve and the army starves and the country becomes, begins to wear down, whether it's in factory production or otherwise. These are the calories. These are the basic necessities that the entire operation needs to move forward. So now we go to May of 1944, the Nebraska farmer of Lincoln, Nebraska. Quote, the Harvest Brigade is the title. Subtitle, Massey Harris Combine Sold According to Plan. Now this story, before I get into it, is a brilliant story on behalf of the company because it reaffirms this idea that they're not simply out there making a profit. Well, they are making a profit. It is for the greater good. And I quote the story. The first lap of the Harvest Brigade plan got underway during April when several hundred Massey Harris self-propelled combines went to work in the Texas flax field. The flax harvested, the machines are being put to work in the southwestern wheat fields, and they will follow the harvest north as the season advances. Designed to aid farmers who have not enough labor for the critical harvest season, the Harvest Brigade plan was evolved by the Massey Harris Company. The combines which they had to sell, the Massey Harris people decided, would go only to farmers and custom operators who would pledge themselves to harvest a minimum of 2,000 acres, over five times the amount usually cut by the average combine during a season. The plan was enthusiastically taken up, and the combines are at work in the fields today. Since the self-propelled combines do not need to be pulled by a tractor and can be operated by one man, this plan for their widespread use is saving a considerable amount of man hours. So once again, we get that dual-sided story. The story of, man, this is happening, the business was done the right way. And oh, by the way, you don't need a tractor to pull this thing. I'm not sure how many times they can wear that point in, but obviously it was a very important point for them to make, and they continued to make it time and time again. So when we talk about uh, the advancement of this Harvest Brigade, we know that they began in Texas, and they begin to move north in that June time frame. 
So we go to the Kingfisher Times of Kingfisher, Oklahoma, 15 June of 1944. Recent arrival in the Kingfisher County of a large number of combines and crews to do custom harvesting has encouraged farmers who lack adequate harvesting equipment and manpower for handling this year's big wheat crop. The influx has included several units of the Massey Harris Self-Propelled Harvest Brigade. 500 of these 12- and 14-foot cut machines are at work in the southwest wheat area and are expected to cut at least a million acres of wheat this year. In so doing, they will save much grain that otherwise will be lost due to lack of equipment and labor. The brigade combine, starting in the southern areas of the wheat belt, will move northward as the harvest progresses through the Great Plains to the Canadian border. Other units are operating in California and the Pacific Northwest. Veith Brothers, the local Massey Harris dealers, have invited farmers into this territory who need assistance in getting their wheat harvested to get in touch with them at once. And that is the coordination of this effort that we really need to talk about now. And that coordination is the fact that, as we talked about, and as was mentioned, you know, everybody in the company was put into this thing. So the dealers were that central point of contact. The central point of contact, they would then contact the, the field kind of marshal guys that would decide how and where they would move the combine next and, and how what order they would work in in the most efficient fashion. The problem is, in 1944, you're dealing with a ground-level view literally of everything. You don't have an aerial view, a GPS map, a satellite imagery, so you're kind of just going off of the landscape. Or you're not, because there is somebody available who can help you. And that somebody is a Massey Harris dealer who happens to own an airplane. And this becomes, to me, one of the neatest parts of this story, in that they begin to employ this airplane as an advanced scouting measure. So this guy flies around, scouts out the fields, figures out what the best logistical move would be for the, the brigade to move into, and then that's kind of how they begin to dispatch the equipment. If we look at the Independent of Wahoo, Nebraska, 15 June of 1944, titled the story Harvest Brigade, 500 Combines, Texas to Canada. Dateline is Grand Forks, North Dakota, June 12th. High over the golden wheat fields of Kansas, a solitary plane drones day after day, guiding 20 units of the Harvest Brigade in their sweep through the Great Plains states to the Canadian border. This vital link in the nationwide campaign to produce the greatest food crop in history is in charge of L.T. Letness, training and operations officer of the Civil Air Patrol in Grand Forks. A 49-year-old flyer with 1,200 hours of flying packed into his four years' experience as a pilot, Mr. Letness has been exempted from many restrictions that govern the movement of non-military flyers in wartime in order to cover the wheat front and shepherd his flock of 20 self-propelled combines across the hundreds of miles of grain between Hutchinson, Kansas, and the Canadian border. His task is to survey the route of the machines, head chop from one farm to another, lining up acreage to be cut and keeping a record of the brigade's progress, and to perform a thousand other jobs connected with moving a mechanical armada so great a distance. The lateness of the wheat crop in most sections has thrown additional challenges into the path of the harvest brigade. Speed is now the vital element because of the shortness of the season. But the wheat must be cut, and it will be, according to pilot Letness. In spite of the bumper crop of vegetables, the grain situation is described as critical because of the enormous demands of the armed forces and needs to feed the millions in the liberated areas of the world. The Harvest Brigade, comprising 500 new self-propelled combines, was organized by the Massey Harris Company of Racine, Wisconsin, in cooperation with the War Food Administration. 
These machines, which can be operated by one man, require no tractor for towing, assuring a maximum harvest because of their ability to cut grain in corners and other areas which are inaccessible to machines which have to be towed. The 500 machines were sold early this year to bona fide custom cutters upon their pledge to enlist in the Harvest Brigade and cut a minimum of 2,000 acres. On northward through Texas and Oklahoma they drove. Sometimes torrential rain soaked the fields, stopped the harvesting. The machines were idle. After the storms, grain that had been beat down was harvested. Ravines and mud holes were skirted. Sometimes the grain was thin and weedy. But on they drove, working toward their goal. The scoreboard on each machine showed steady gains day by day as the acreages cut were recorded. As the wheat ripened, they moved northward into Kansas and Nebraska. The government field agencies extended the finest cooperation to the men of the brigade throughout the harvest. They constantly supplied information and assistance that increased the efficiency and organization of the harvest brigade beyond measure. County agents also cooperated with men like Massey Harris dealer Larry Letness, who assisted the organization in working out schedules and cutting locations. Letness, piloting his own plane, kept in constant touch with the brigade. I mean, how awesome is this, right? Is this not the coolest thing? Maybe I'm overblowing it, but I feel as though this really is an amazing full-court press to get the job done. And it began to really feel like a full-court press when the details of what was actually happening in the field started to emerge. This story from the Pampa Daily News of Pampa, Texas, 25 June 1944. Title, Great Grainlands Yielding Wealth. The Harvest Brigade is underway in the great Texas wheat fields, leaving in its wake a grain-cutting record never dreamed of when the hardy pioneers gathered their first crops a hundred years ago. 35 self-propelled combines, each operating by one man, are averaging 50 acres a day in Ford and Young counties. Some are working as late as 3 a.m. and rolling up records of 80 acres in their 18-hour days. Bad weather has delayed the start of the harvest for nearly two weeks, but Harvest Brigade operators speeded up their schedules and have made up nearly a week of lost time. One of the first acreages cut was the Ferno Ranch, 18 miles north of Dallas. It was here that the Ferno family settled 96 years ago and harvested its wheat with cradles, those primitive back-breaking devices that only the strongest could handle. In those days, it took a force of 25 men four days to cut 50 acres, and in the inefficient implements produced a yield far below the 32 bushels an acre harvested this year. And so they mounted lights on these things, and so these guys would run these, these combines 18 hours a day and they were doing that to try to make up, as mentioned, for the lost time they had with some bad weather that slowed them down early. And it is kind of a neat thing to think about when, to me, it's almost a heroic vision of somebody almost slumped over the wheel of one of these things. Again, they are completely unprotected in the cockpit of this. So they're sweltering uh, during the day, obviously a more comfortable environment at night, but it is dust constantly flying around. You got that uh, barrel of uh, or the, the hopper, if you will, of the harvested grain behind you. That's going to be all dusty and stuff. And so it does take a special breed, a special tough breed of person to actually be able to do this for that uh, for that amount of time to have that level of stamina. And so when we look at the kind of one man ability of these machines, we know that we just heard that they can get up to 80 acres a day. But 
it starts to break down in, in, in a good way. We're going to break down some numbers here as we go back to the Sepulpa Herald of Sepulpa, Oklahoma, 26 June 1944. Title, One Man Harvest Crews Move In. The Harvest Brigade, a fleet of one-man self-propelled combines, has maneuvered into Oklahoma wheat fields, and in the record of a single operator in the vicinity of Davidson is indicative of the speed and thoroughness of the campaign to harvest the greatest food crop in the nation's history. Mark Wolf of Oakley Union, Texas, one of the hundreds of custom cutters working in the Harvest Brigade, cut 380 acres of wheat in seven days, working a total of 82 and a half hours. On one of the days, he operated his combine until 3 a.m., averaging more than 50 acres a day. This record is made on the farm of W.L. Lee at Davidson, Oklahoma, one of the hundreds of farms being lined up to be custom harvested because of the lack of manpower and machinery to do the job without assistance. Wolf's record also included a new low cost for the operation. He listed his expenses, expenses exclusive of labor as follows. Gasoline, $36.40, which works out to less than three quarters of a gallon per acre. Grease, $3.75. Oil, $1.60. The Harvest Brigade, a great crop-cutting armada of 500 self-propelled combines, was originated by Massey Harris in cooperation with the War Food Administration in an effort to cut 1 million acres of grain that otherwise would go bad. The machines were sold early in the year to bona fide custom cutters. More than 40 of these machines that have harvested 60,000 acres of the wheat area around Dallas, Texas, have completed their task there and are moving north through the Panhandle country in Oklahoma. Bad weather delayed the start of the harvest for two weeks, but the operators, once they got underway, have exceeded their goals, many of them having already made up a week or more of lost time. So really, that story is a more detailed version of the previous story, but we talk about the expenses, and one of the things that that, that guy said, he didn't include labor cost. So if it's a one-man operation, what would his labor cost be? Well, somebody has to drive the truck to the grain silo where this is all getting dropped off. And so there's a labor cost associated there. Also a fuel cost. They never factor in the cost of fuel for the trucks, which I kind of understand, but it's kind of a funny twist on the numbers. The the factories, of course, sent the mechanics. They sent truckloads of parts and pieces because these machines were running 13 hours a day, and they would need maintenance, and they would need to be fixed. And there was always whatever these operators needed on hand and skilled uh, mechanics to actually get the job done. That is one of the more awesome parts of this as well, especially when it comes to the benefit of Massey Harris. Remember, the Model 21 at this point is four years old, and they had sold a fair amount of them, but this was the single greatest exercise of field testing probably ever executed in the history of agriculture. These were 500 units that went out and were working constantly, and they were getting more information back on what needed to be improved, what was failing, what needed to be fixed. You know, you think about an automobile being tested and, and maybe a wheel bearing is not to the proper spec and it wears out early, so they replace that. This was the same thing that was happening out here. And the more they worked the machines, the more they actually learned about what was the you know necessary improvements. And the manpower that we're talking about, these guys that are just made of iron that just continue to, to knock out the work, it was relentless. It really did not stop. And the results just poured in state by state. So as we're moving toward this through the season, we get to the number, or rather I should say the 15th of July, 1944, back to our friends again at the Sepulpa Herald. And before this point, that 1,000 or rather 2,000 acre commitment 
was actually beefed up. The company came back and said, okay, we know we got you to sign the document for 2,000, but we're probably going to need you to do 2,500 or 3,000 acres. And you would think people would balk at that. But here's the other part of this equation we haven't talked about yet. The operators are being paid by the farmers whose fields they were cutting. So they were making money hand over fist. And you think, are the farmers getting screwed over having to pay these guys? And the answer is no. The farmers really didn't have a problem paying these guys to do the work, not only because they didn't have the people, but secondly, because demand for wheat was so high, the price of wheat was through the roof, absolutely through the roof. It was at levels that it would not be seen again for decades. And so the fact that they were going to give up a little bit of the most profitable crop they'd ever grown to save themselves a lot of backbreaking labor really didn't hurt anybody's feelings. So again, we go to July 15th here, and this story is titled, Harvest Brigade and Moving Rapidly, Garnering Crop. Biggest wheat crop in history being handled faster than ever before with less help. And so I'm going to skip you through to the, to the meat of this story. But frankly, um, eh, you know what, we're going to go through it because there are some new facts in here. Reports from the Harvest Brigade, an armada of 500 self-propelled combines operating in the nation's great wheat belt, indicate that a miracle crop is in prospect. Early in the season, the outlook was dismal. Unfavorable weather had retarded growth and harvesting operations were held up for two weeks in Texas and Oklahoma. Suddenly, nature staged a surprising reversal and the ideal weather prevailed throughout the region's grain regions. Crop crop statisticians sharpened their pencils and furiously revised their estimates upward. Week by week, the figures were raised and by the end of last week, figures were passing all previous totals. Joe Joe Tucker... Marshall of the Massey Harris Harvest Brigade, who has just completed a personal survey of wheat country, estimates a crop of 1.2 million bushels, an increase of 364 million bushels over last year's bumper production. Now, that is definitely a typo. The 1.2 million bushels is an increase over what was harvested last year of 364 million bushels, so that's going to bring that up. Now, let's go through the roundup by state that is in this story, which is very interesting. Texas. Harvesting now going on in the panhandle and will be completed in two weeks. Amazing yields are being reported, some as high as 40 bushels to the acre. Last official estimate for the state was 6.09 million bushels, the second largest crop in history. Oklahoma. Harvesting of a record-breaking wheat crop almost completed except in the panhandle. Surprisingly high yields are reported and will be expected to boost total production to 80 million bushels. This compares with the previous top mark of 74.9 million bushels in 1931. Little grain is left standing and the combines are moving north to Kansas. Now here's where the numbers get really big. The home of the nation's prize wheat crop is about to furnish another whopper. Previous official estimates which placed the crop at 174.7 million bushels will increase 30 million over last year based on a protective yield of 16, a prospective yield of 16 bushels an acre. But with the Harvest Brigade reporting yields as high as 40 bushels an acre, the total should soar far beyond cautious earlier estimates. The crop has been harvested as far north as Salina in the east and Dodge City in the west. This next headline says far north states crop heavy. Nebraska Dakotas. Reports from Nebraska indicated a marked improvement in the wheat outlook while the Dakotas, the last area to be harvested, all signs point to a bumper crop approaching record proportions. Because of the lateness of the crop and the fact that the Texas-Oklahoma harvest telescoped each other, the 500 operators of the self-propelled combines in the Harvest Brigade increased their individual quotas from 2,000 to 3,000 acres. 
The machines were sold to them early this year on their pledge to enlist in the brigade and cut a minimum of 2,000 acres. These staggering increases in the wheat crop are taxing the brigade to the utmost. The operators are working day and night to reach their goal of harvesting an additional 1.5 million acres of grain that otherwise might be lost in this critical time through the shortages of manpower and machines. From Kansas, the brigade will move into the Nebraska area, determined to achieve its purpose, to cut more grain with fewer men and machines than ever before in history. It is, this is an, an elation. You know, this is an elation for a nation that was in the depths of a war that at times seemed as though it was going to go on forever and at times seemed as though we might have been on the wrong end of the victory side. So when some stuff like this happens, it reinvigorates a population knowing that there is definitely going to be food on the table and knowing that the, the things that this country can do when they come together are absolutely extraordinary. Meanwhile, in California and the great Northwest, other divisions of the brigade were at work. In addition to wheat and other small grains, the self-propelled combines worked wonders in the huge, wet fields of rice. In other sections of the country, maize was harvested. Flax was another of the many crops brought in by the Harvest Brigade. As the end of the harvest neared, the scoreboard showed continued increases. Many machines passed the original 2,000-acre goal, reaching in some instances far in excess of the 3,000-acre mark. And so it went all summer long, it would not without its challenges and not without its problems. But I tried every which way to research people having industrial accidents and, and losing their lives in this. And there were certainly people that were injured and maimed, as there always are when we talk about this mass deployment of farm equipment. But I could not find a single fatality or a story of somebody being drunk on the job or anything like that. And whether that was uh, a very well-orchestrated media campaign by Joe Tucker and Massey Harris, or that was simply the nature of backbreaking work, it just was relentless. And I love the vision of the fact that a lot of times these guys would drive these combines from farm to farm. They went eight miles an hour. So they would spend hours on these backcountry roads driving from place to place. Yes, they did occasionally load them on trucks, but loading them on a flatbed truck was a very hairy operation with some kind of janky ramps, and there was stuff hanging off the sides of the truck. People did do that, but a lot of these combines at a grand speed of 8 miles an hour through day, night, and darkness got driven from farm to farm to farm. You have to wonder what that was like if you were a farmer that was looking out in his, uh, into his wheat field knowing that he had this killer crop that was going to provide his family a great income for that year and maybe being nervous that it was not going to get harvested or that he would lose a lot of it. And he calls his local Massey Harris dealer and says, I need your help. And those guys say, okay. And then they get in touch with the guy with the airplane. And he goes flying around and starts to do some logistical work, and they come back and they say, all right, we'll get to you next week. What was that moment like when a combine or two combines – or five combines, rolled up to your property. It is, in my mind, a Norman Rockwell painting. It is this great relief, and it's victory, and it's a glass of cold lemonade, and it's a sandwich from, from the farmer's wife. I mean, these are all the things you kind of think about when you go down to the human level of this story. It is the mechanical side of it that is fascinating to me in that these machines were built to do something and they did it in such a spectacular way, it helped to feed millions of people. But that singular human element 
of that nervous farmer being, I'm not going to say rescued, rescued is a little dramatic, but being relieved by the Harvest Brigade and these American farm boys on top of their big giant combine machines. It's brilliant. And it went all the way to the end of the summer. And we finally have an Eastern-based story on the Harvest Brigade, 23 September of 1944. At this point, the season is pretty much over. They may be wrapping up in a couple of different areas, but the majority of the work has been done. That said, this is kind of a victory lap style story. And it was it is from the Lancaster Eagle Gazette of Lancaster, Ohio, as I mentioned, 23 September 1944. Title, Harvest Brigade Cited for Record. Through the ingenuity of the Massey Harris Company, for whom Kelly R. Hannon is the local representative and distributor of more than 1.5 million acres of wheat, from the panhandle of Texas to the Dakotas and Montana were harvested this summer by the Massey-Harris Self-Propelled Harvest Brigade, a unit closely coordinated with the War Food Administration's needs. The brigade has just been cited for its excellent record by the food administrator Marvin Jones. The plan was devised by Joe Tucker, vice president of the Massey-Harris Company in the fall of 1943, called for the production of 514-foot self-propelled Massey-Harris combines which would be sold to custom operators in order to qualify for a combine. The operators were pledged to harvest at least 2,000 acres through the grain belt. The plan was approved by the WFA and deliveries of the combines in May in Texas and Oklahoma. As seen, the progress delivered the Harvest Brigade accolades as they moved northward. Reports on the huge operation tell of dozens of combines concentrating the equivalent of five years' work into a single summer of record harvesting by single combines that have cut over 100 acres with one machine in one day's run. Of four operators who have exceeded their season pledge of 2,000 acres and have gone well over 3,000 acres of sturdy, dependable service given by the self-propelled 14-foot Massey-Harris combines under unprecedented heavy duty. The brigade is dramatic proof of the contribution of modern farm machinery to the cause of victory, it was said. Faced with a shortage of manpower, the huge self-propelled combines moved northward through the wheat belt, but a single man to a unit. Answering the fuel shortage, they provided their own motive power with one engine that propelled the combine and operated the threshing mechanism, thus saving many gallons of fuel. Since there is no tractor to run down again on the side of the opening to cut ahead of the self-propelled combine, it saves in grain, it saves in wasted grain to an estimate a half a bushel per acre. The factor alone is believed to have saved about a half a million bushels of wheat in the course of the brigade's operation. The total harvest of the Massey-Harris self-propelled harvest brigade is estimated at more than 25 million bushels of grain. In the early fall, the harvest brigade reached its goal. Wheat and other small grains grown from Texas to the Canadian border in California and the great northwest had been brought in. The Harvest Brigade went far beyond its goal of one million acres. The men of the land had worked together in this American harvest to form one of the swiftest, most efficient teams the world has ever known, the Massey-Harris Harvest Brigade. 500 men, 500 machines, doing more work per man and per machine than ever before in the history of the world. In the unforgettable year of 1944, the year of the Wonder Harvest. And with that kind of triumphant note, I'll put a wrapper on this story, which I realize is a little out of the norm for what we normally do around here in the Dorkomotive podcast, but I think it clicks a lot of those same buttons, at least for me it does, when we tell stories of man and machine 
and we tell stories of man and humanity and machine. And that's what this is. When that final story that we read from September in Ohio was written, the United States was then three months into the invasion of Europe. 19, June of 1944 was D-Day. September of 1944, the Allied forces had begun to push their way across France, and in doing so, were needing every bullet and every gallon of gasoline and every ounce of oil and grease they could get. But more than that, they needed food. And they got it because of the Harvest Brigade and the hard work of the American farmer in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. And let's not discount the work of the Canadian farmers and those in Britain, which also had their own smaller but still impressive versions of the Harvest Brigade. I'm interested in what your opinions are of Joe Tucker's approach here. I know it was Machiavellian but he was also the guy that spotted the best solution to a problem that nobody seemed to have an answer to. And yes, his company did profit from it. But so didn't the farmers, so didn't the operators, and ultimately, so didn't the United States of America. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for listening to the Dorkamotive Podcast. I can't wait to see you back here again. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Drag and Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there.